you can open to John chapter 12, and as Brian mentioned a few minutes ago, this is the same passage we were in last week, and the reason for that is there's just so much here. Pastor Rob and I have been studying this book together and talking. We have some amazing conversations, and we have been just exploring together all the, the richness and the depth of what is recorded here, and we thought, you know, we're going to spend one more week in this passage and try to focus on one theme that wasn't really touched upon last week. It's, it's a theme that really emerges in verse 31. It's a, it's a brief statement, could fly right by it, but it's loaded with significance and it really fits with everything that surrounds it. And so let me have you read it with me. Verse 31 of John 12, as we get started, it says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So this deals with the cosmic conflict between God and Satan and how the cross of Christ was the decisive victory of God for us. That's what we're going to be talking about. You notice on the screens next to me, the title of the message this morning is Checkmate, which of course is a chess term. Now, I am not an avid chess player. I have played a few times. I'm terrible at it because I'm not that smart, okay? So I'm not good at chess, but I do remember playing, and I remember the object of the game, and you, I'm sure, know the object of the game is to get to that point where you can announce checkmate. That is victory in that game. And one of the things I remember about playing chess many, many years ago was I lost in the same fashion more than once. More than one time I made this mistake. I was so focused on trying to get to the king of my opponent, so focused on my sort of offensive strategy, that I failed to realize what he was doing to get to my king. So just when I thought I had him... It turns out he had me and beat me to the punch and announced checkmate. Well, what we see here in this portion of the Gospel of John is in a very real sense the divine checkmate because this is where it seems as though Christ is defeated. It seems as though he is at his end and he is finished. But in reality, it is finished. This is where God secures true victory True victory for us, so that as Jesus wins, we too win. And it all comes down to what is happening right here in this context of John's gospel, the historical context, the cross of Christ. So let's do this. We're going to work our way through, and we're going to consider, first of all, the strategy of the evil one, the strategy of Satan. So we're going to be here in John 12, but for a moment, if you would, come with me to Genesis chapter 3. This is where it all begins, and probably many of you are familiar with this, but we're going to take a little bit of a careful look at it this morning and consider how Satan operates. I want to tell you the story before we look at Genesis 3. Many, many years ago, I was probably a, a early teens, probably in that phase of my life, and I was sleeping one night. And all of a sudden, the light goes on in my room, and my younger brother busts in my room, and I hear the commotion, and I wake up out of a sound sleep, and he's looking at me, and, I, and the look in his eyes, I, I almost feel like I still remember the look in his eyes. He's just terrified, and he said, Jeff, wake up, wake up. I'm like, you got it, man. I'm awake. I'm here. What's up? He said, Jeff, I can't sleep. Yeah, that makes two of us. What's up? He said, hey, I had a substitute teacher in school today, and I think he was in like middle school. And he said, the substitute teacher told our class this like creepy story. He told us that he woke up one night and, and Satan was sitting on the end of his bed talking to him. And he said, man, he's like, I can't sleep. 
I was like, well, thanks, because now I can't sleep either. And now you are saying, hey, thanks, Jeff. That's a great story to start your message with. Here's why I tell that story. True story. Sometimes we think of Satan in terms of spooky, scary things like that. I have conversations with people in which they communicate to me their fears about Satan, what he's up to in this world, what he's up to in their lives, what he might be up to in the lives of their children. Scary stuff, and, and appropriately so. But don't forget, as Paul says in the New Testament, Satan appears as an angel of light. Okay, so we think, picture the, the red costume, the, the horns, the, the, those types of images. But he's far more subtle and seductive than we often give him credit for. There's actually a, a deeper danger, and we we're acquainted with that here in Genesis 3, in the beginning, where it all kind of unfolded in terms of the fall of man and sin takes place. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me and just remind you of the story that, again, most of you are familiar with, but we're going to just look at specifically what it is Satan was doing. How does he play the game in this cosmic conflict that's going on? It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What is he communicating there? He's communicating basically this message. You can't trust your creator. You can't trust him. If you just take of this fruit, you'll be like him. You'll be independent. You won't need him. And you'll have greater things in your life. He knows that if you take this fruit, you'll be like him. He doesn't want any competition. He doesn't want you to be elevated. And so he's withholding something good from you. Even though Genesis begins with God created this and God created that and it was good and it was good and it was good. At the end of chapter 1, it says God looked over all he had made and behold, it was very good. Even though it declares that God made everything good. Satan is essentially saying here by implication, God has not been good to you. It's better that you take your life into your own hands. It's better that you live independently. Or if you're going to involve God, at least keep him at a distance. See, you can go get life for yourself. You can go get what's really worth having. You can get it for yourself. That was Satan's deception. That was the lie. That was his message. That was his strategy. And that is his strategy. It may be. Someone in the room may say, well, I don't know, I don't think I believe in Satan or a literal devil. Uh, it sounds mythological or, yeah, there's, there's truth of evil and good and things like that. But I don't know if I buy into this, this figure, Satan. More and more in our culture, people are denying the existence of, of course, both God but also Satan. But every human being is familiar with his strategy because everybody knows what it feels like to think, well, I've got to do it my way. I've got to trust that I know what I'm doing here. Scripture declares that there is, of course, a real God and a real Satan. And that is his seductive message. That is his lie. And people have believed it from the beginning of time and 
to one degree or another, even as God's children, having had our eyes open to the greatness of Christ, who he is and what he's done for us, there are still ways in which we believe his lies, don't we? There are still ways in which every day we question the goodness of God. Every time we're anxious, every time we complain or murmur to another person or some, about something, every time we're bitter or jealous or resentful, underneath that is always the belief of the fallen side of ourselves, the fallen person, the flesh, call it the old man, all different terms the scripture uses. Underneath that is the underlying belief that God's not been good to you or God's not been good enough to you. So that's how Satan plays the game. That's his strategy. And we're all familiar with it. And we've all succumbed to it. The Bible says elsewhere, he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. In 1 John 5, verse 19, it says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's how he keeps people enslaved and controlled is by that lie. The lie of independence, the lie of pride, the lie of unbelief, the lie that says you can find joy and peace and satisfaction in the created world apart from your God, even if you involve him, just keep him at a distance. Don't let him come close. And whatever you do, don't let him rescue you. You've got to rescue yourself, that lie. That's how he keeps us all enslaved. And we would be stuck and we would be lost and there would be nothing but darkness hopelessness and death if not for our good God our champion our rescuer and so here we are in John 12 you can turn back there with me now John chapter 12 we are approaching the end of Christ's life this is the climactic moment and we're going to see here how it is that God plays this game so to speak if we're carrying out the metaphor of chess how it is that God wins how it is that he declares checkmate when it comes to the evil one. It is the long-awaited hour. It has finally arrived. There's been build-up to this throughout John's gospel. I've mentioned it. Pastor Rob has mentioned it. So we are at this climactic moment, okay, in the divine standoff between Christ and Satan. And it says in verse 27, Now my soul has become troubled. So this is Jesus' personal sense of anguish. This is not easy for him. This is difficult for him, especially because he knows what is coming. He knows that on that cross, he will experience separation from his Father. For the first time in his eternal existence, he will experience that. So he, is, he was distressed. He is under duress. He says, what shall I say, however? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I came to this hour. This is it, he says. This is the moment. This is what it all comes down to. And then he lets us in on this conversation between himself and his father verse 28 father glorify your name then a voice came out of heaven i have both glorified it and will glorify it again so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it, it had thundered others were saying an angel has spoken to him jesus answered and said this voice has not come for my sake but for your sakes so there's something that you need to hear here in this conversation between myself and my father. And here we are let in on the, one, of the, one of the details of one of the things God is up to in this conflict and overcoming and disarming Satan. One of the things he is up to is he is vindicating his name. Do you notice in their brief interaction here, the brief conversation between the father and the son, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. 
Then the voice comes out of heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Meaning, there is coming a moment in which my name is going to be glorified in a way far more spectacular than how it's been glorified before. This is an amazing moment of the glorification of the name of the Father. And another way of saying that would be this. This is a moment in which the glory, the value, the greatness of God's reputation will be declared, will be revealed for all the world to see. He will be glorified. Go back to the lie in your mind for a moment. God has not been good. God is not generous. God is not kind or he is not kind enough. He is not taking care of you adequately. You need to take care of you. That same lie is an undermining of the very character and purposes of God. It's a lie concerning who God is and what He is like. It's a lie concerning His reputation. And here on the cross, one of the things that's happening is, is the name of God is being vindicated. God is showing that He is in fact trustworthy. That He is in fact good and kind. That He has taken care of us. And that He is our rescuer. He is our Savior. So He is glorifying His name. He's showing that while we go our own way, He comes after us. While we reject Him, He accepts us. While we even hate Him, He loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The glowing, magnificent, amazing name and reputation of our God is on display here on the cross of Christ. In the Old Covenant, there are all these prophecies that look forward to the New Covenant. So in the Old Testament, looking forward to the New Testament would be another way of saying it. And one of those New Covenant prophecies is in Ezekiel 36, and there God declares that He is going to rescue His people. He is going to take out the heart of stone. He is going to put in a heart of flesh. Another way of saying He's going to remove the lies. He's going to speak the truth. He's going to remove the darkness. He's going to give us light. He's going to do that. And He says there He's going to do it for His name's sake. To vindicate His great name. Because creatures throughout all of human history, each one of us, we have all questioned God's character, questioned his goodness, questioned his trustworthiness. I remember years ago talking to a friend about complaining. And we said, man, we just find that we're complaining so frequently about whatever. All the different things that come up in life, right? Bad traffic, irritating people, whatever it is, things that happen in the household and We've all heard one another complain in our households, right? So we're talking about it. I remember him saying, you know, it's interesting. It's like every time we're complaining, even about the smallest, slightest little things, it's almost like we're trying to persuade the other person that God's not good. You ever thought of it that way? In that moment, we're saying, this is the way this is. I'm trusting in my perspective of the situation. This is not good, and I'm going to tell you about it, and hopefully you'll join me in complaining. I kind of did that with the Kansas City Chiefs earlier, a little bit maybe. I'm just now realizing that. I hope that wasn't a stumbling block to you. I have a feeling most of you were already with me on that. But these are ways in which we, we literally are believing lies, and then we, we express the lies, and we're sort of like spreading them. You know what I mean? And here we have this moment in which God is saying, look at the cross of Christ. Look at the humility. Look at his yieldedness to the plan of his Father. Look at his love and mercy for his sinful people. Look at the heart of God showcased there on the cross and know that the name of your God has been vindicated. God is saying, this is who I really am. 
I have been good to you in the greatest possible way, in a way that can even touch down in those little details of our everyday lives. And so there's this declaration here and this communication between the Father and the Son that God is, he is glorifying his name. It's one of the things he's doing. Another thing that he's doing is he's uh, judging the world. And you, you see this in verse 31, the beginning of the verse. Now judgment is upon this world. And, and we think of a judge and we think of a courtroom and we think of legal settings and, and that's appropriate in the cosmic sense, in the transcendent sense, and even in the, in the simple basic sense, it's a big concept, but it's very basic. It's, it's really just the idea of decision, a decision being made, like a verdict being rendered, okay? And it's, it's this decision, it's a separation. It's like there's this and there's this. There's this side and there's this side. There's a very real sense in which the cross is this, it's this great divide. It's this distinguishing moment in human history. It's like... It's, it's a moment of decision. It's a moment of separation. You, you can't be neutral about it. If you hear this message that your God had to come live in your place, die in your place, rise in your place to rescue you from your sin, from your misery, and from your death, if you hear that message, if you in your mind's eye visualize Christ crucified, you, you're left with the conclusion, wait, I got, I, got a, I got a decision to make here. What am I going to do with this? And there's one option or the other. One option is we come with empty hands and we say, you're my Savior. You're my God. I need you. I need that kind of love. I need that kind of sacrifice. I, I need that kind of other-centeredness that I don't naturally have. God, I need you. I don't have righteousness of my own. You're my only hope. That's one option. The other option is to say, yeah, but I, I think I, I got it. No, I, that's, you know, again, to, to, uh, to Jews, it's a stumbling block. To Gentiles or Greeks, it's foolishness. Right? It's foolish, mythical nonsense, right? One perspective. Or the, well, yeah, there's this guy and he died, but he was just, you know, it's been embellished and it's been taken too far and he was just a historical figure and just maybe a good man, but if anything, he's just an example and that's all there is to it. But he's not really your savior like through and through. You can't trust him with everything. So it's this dividing moment. You see, it's like the, what you do with the cross is, is so decisive in terms of who you are and how you live and relate to your creator or not. Can't be neutral about it. You either turn away from yourself and toward him or you turn away from him and toward yourself. You'll either believe that life is found in trusting him or you'll believe that life is found in trusting you or trusting other people or trusting other entities of one kind or another. It's such a game-changer and polarizing moment. And so he says, now judgment is upon this world. It's this crucial moment. So we've seen that God is glorifying his name or vindicating his name. God judges the world and now, and this all relates to what comes next, which is God casting out Satan in verse 31, the end of the verse. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out could be translated, he'll be thrown out, he'll be driven out, he'll be banished. A couple observations here about this. Uh, notice, notice, first of all, that they weren't, even the people in the crowd there, they weren't understanding this. The disciples elsewhere were told they weren't quite understanding this. He, he goes on to say, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. 
but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. If you go to verse 34, well, we've heard of the law that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? So in one sense, they were questioning, well, wait a minute, what do you mean you're going to die? You're, you're going to die? Like, why are you going to die? You have to, that doesn't, no, we, we just, the Messiah, and they're thinking of the prophecies related to the king who has an everlasting throne and things like that. And think, well, he's not going to die. He just, and, and remember, even his followers, even Peter, at one point when Jesus said, I'm going to be turned over to the Romans, I'm going to be put to death, and on the third day I'm going to rise again. And Peter, remember this, Peter says, oh, it's never going to happen. I mean, imagine saying that to Jesus. Oh, that's never going to happen. You're, <laughs> you're mistaken. And it, and it even says, the language there is, it says, and he was rebuking Jesus saying, that's never going to happen. At which point Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? There's a sense in which in the cross, Satan is throwing all of his fury at Christ. There's also a sense in which Satan doesn't want him to go to his cross. There's a sense in which, naturally speaking, all of us would want to think the story of redemption, the story of God, the story of life can happen without the crosses because we know Jesus says to us, you too must take up your cross. And that's the part like, ah, ah, ah. I don't know how I feel about that. Well, I do know how I don't feel good about that. It requires the cross, however. It, it has to happen. And so part of the deception here is they're thinking, well, uh, no, that doesn't, the Messiah is not going to go to that kind of humiliation and execution. Even his disciples were believing the same thing. And Jesus says, no, that, this is absolutely what's going to happen. I'm going to be lifted up. I have to be lifted up. The kind of redemption we've been talking about all morning, it, it's, the cross is necessary for that to take place. And he says, look, it's going to happen. And through this cross, going back to the end of verse 31, the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, another observation here. This is interesting. It says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So kind of like two time references there. Present, now. Okay? Will be cast out, future. And there's a lot of debate by biblical scholars and thinkers and commentators and a lot of debate about what, what the future part especially is referring to. Is it referring to what's happening soon and him going to the cross or is it referring to the, the final elimination of Satan or where he is bound in the future what is it referring to and i'm not sure exactly but definitely in this context the the main point is to say this decisive moment what jesus accomplished on the cross is the means by which satan is cast out and there's a, a very real important sense in which his casting out means his ability to hold sway over you to hold the power over you that says, yes, God has not been good to you. That everything that's related to your temptation and, and everything related to the penalty of sin and all of that that he holds over you, the power of sin and death that he holds over this world, in the moment of the cross, God says, you're free. The, the, the key goes into the lock. It's opened up. You're set free in the moment of the cross. This is where the death blow is dealt to Satan. This is where God releases you. And a big part of how He releases you is by proclaiming to you the forgiveness of sins. That all of your sin has been paid for and covered. All the times, and we can't even count them, all the times that we've failed to believe that God is good. All the times that we've failed to be grateful. 
all the times that we've failed to serve other people and instead have used or exploited other people, all the times that we're murmuring and complaining and bitter and resentful, all those times, all of it has been taken care of, all of it has been cleansed, all of it purified, it is finished, Jesus accomplished it, you are free from your sin. At root here, what this is describing is how God has disarmed the devil. He can hold nothing over you. Clearly, he is still operative in this world. And that's what comes up in some of the discussions among Bible teachers is, okay, but Satan is, and he is active in this world. First Peter says that he is like a lion prowling around, roaring and seeking someone to devour. So he is active. But what is he doing? It's the same old thing. It's the same old thing. Seeking to persuade people God's not good. You can't trust him. You can't trust him to guide you in terms of the ways of life that would protect you from sin and you can't trust him when you've sinned. Oh, don't go back to him. You just atone for it yourself. Just clean yourself up on the outside. Be a good little boy or a good little girl and that'll be fine. Don't, but just don't go running into his arms. Don't go kneeling at the foot of the cross. Don't go there. That's what he's up to. That's what he's been up to. It's the same old thing. So he is active and he is defeated. He's moving around. He is, he is sort of living in that sense and yet he's already dead. Remember an old friend saying, I'm not a farming person, but he told me in cutting the heads off of chickens, they often flop around for a while after the head has been chopped off. This is, this is, and this, going back, think of Genesis and the prophecy. This is, this is Jesus crushing the head of Satan on the cross, saying, my people belong to me, and you can't have them. And I've taken care of them. And I've spoken the truth which sets free. And I've embodied the truth which sets free. And I've revealed to them that God is, in fact, good. And they know it. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. So... One of the things God is up to here is casting out or banishing or throwing out Satan. And he accomplished that on his cross. Last observation here, and this is we keep going through the, the text here. After they question in verse 34, thinking the Messiah is to remain forever, but Jesus insists that he must be lifted up, and he means specifically lifted up on the cross. And then he says this, and this is where we see that God also shines his light. That's another way that God is securing victory as he shines his light. So Jesus said to them in verse 35, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. We had our uh, Q&A conversation last Sunday night and Pastor Rob and I enjoyed talking through that and then we've had conversations with some of you uh, since then about some of those questions and uh, we got through two of, I think we had 12 total questions. So there's another Q&A coming up soon. Stay tuned, we'll have another one soon. It's kind of amazing we even made it through two, isn't it? I mean, at this, you know, we can talk, we're talkers. So we can do that, but we really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the questions that came in that we didn't get to 
And then we'll probably get to in more detail later, but I want to say something about right now is a question regarding light and darkness, and that's what we have before us here in John 12. And in John's gospel, there have been many references to light and darkness, and the question was just, hey, how do you harmonize all these? Because sometimes in the context, it seems like something maybe different is being said. And so I went, spent some time looking those over, and, and, and there's more that can be said just to be really simple, though, and to capture what's happening right here and how it fits into all of God is doing in terms of disarming Satan and accomplishing his purposes. Uh, light is, of course, a metaphor that speaks of that which reveals that which reveals what is otherwise hidden, okay? And so in this passage, and even consistent with everything we've been seeing, Satan is apt to deceive. He wants people to be hiding. He wants people to believe those lies, to avoid exposure before God, honest, humble exposure before God, and to avoid honest exposure, humble uh, humility before other people. He, He wants us to avoid those things, okay? And Jesus comes as the embodiment of light. And everywhere he goes, he speaks truth and he personifies truth. He speaks righteousness. He personifies righteousness. And so everywhere he goes, it's like light is shining. And all these passages throughout John as light and darkness are described, it's all referring to, in one way or another, referring to these same realities of what what our nature is to do, namely run and hide and cover and be deceived, and deceive in return. Like, that's our nature, and God's nature, which is to speak truth, to reveal true righteousness, to expose, to welcome us to come to the light. And so in this moment, Jesus is saying, hey, while I'm here, listen to what I'm saying to you. Of course, once he's taken out of the way, once he's crucified, and even when he rises and he ascends, he's taken out of the way, and there's, for a time, especially before the apostles start preaching and spreading the gospel, there's, there's deception and questions and darkness and confusion. And so he's saying, just, just listen to me. Believe what I'm saying. Come to me. Trust in me. He said just a moment ago about the idea of being lifted up and drawing all men to himself. He's just saying, come to me. Come, come to, the, to the foot of the cross. Come in humility and transparency. When the facade comes down, with the Pharisees whitewashing the outsides, like just come honestly. Come be small, come be broken. Come you sinners, poor and needy. Just come. He says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself, which is his way of saying, just, just this beacon of light goes out to the world. Just come. Come to your God. I'm here for you. The lie says, I haven't been good to you, but the truth is, I've been good to you, and to show you, if you have question. Look at my son dying for you. Look at the lengths I'm willing to go to to bring you to myself. He shines his light. The cross is the divine checkmate. It is the divine checkmate where God finally and decisively turns the tables on Satan, providing the greatest evidence ever that God is not bad but good, that he is not withholding good from his creatures, but that he offers the greatest good himself that he is generous and gracious and kind, that he loves us sacrificially in ways that no one else ever has or could ever apart from him, that at our worst he gives us his best, that he will stop at nothing to win us back to himself, to bring us to himself as his children, to be forever in his care. The cross is the central moment in human history. It is central to our lives as individuals. It is central to our church, it is central to our preaching and teaching and counseling, and it is the antidote, it is the cure 
for the disease that plagues us all, the lie that says, God, you haven't been good to me, or you haven't been good enough to me. That lie, the one we're all so familiar with, the cross is the antidote. And so it is the explosion of divine light. It is the the ultimate in paradigm shifts. It is, to use uh, a a modern culture, it is is the red pill. (laughs) We're invited to come and say, God, I need you. I can't rescue myself. Left to myself, God, it is, it is deception, it is selfishness, it is greed, it is using and exploiting other people, it is bitterness and resentment, it is neuroticism and uptightness, it is me being plagued with one thing or another. God, I need you. And looking up to the cross and seeing Christ crucified and hearing God say to me and say to you, yeah, I know, I love you and I have you and I've provided everything you need. I'm going to read this as I close and then we'll pray. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it, to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Let's pray. God, we are here this morning as people basking in your victory. Thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his willingness to humbly go to the cross, to go to execution. To absorb in that moment the the hatred of mankind, including ourselves in our natural state, our human hatred and rebellion and hostility. To absorb our hatred. To absorb the, the hatred of the devil, the evil one. And to absorb your wrath against that hatred. To satisfy your requirements. To fulfill all righteousness to provide covering and cleansing for us so that we could be free sons and daughters, free to experience joy and peace, to run and frolic and play and delight in you and to sing and dance because of Christ and what he's accomplished for us. Lord, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your word to us about your son Thank you for the penetration, how it touches down the deepest levels of our hearts and our minds, how it shines light and drives away the darkness. Help us to trust as we look at your cross. Help us to trust that you are in fact good, that you have taken care of us, that we have nothing to fear, that we are on our way home. Help us to believe that. Help us to live in the freedom of that. Help us to love and serve one another. Under the banner, it is finished. In Jesus' name, amen.